0: Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Is there free will in this life? Do we do good and bad things out of free choice, out of circumstances over which we have little or no control, or was it all planned ahead of our birth? And about what we've done, many near-death experiencers say there's a life review when we die in which we see the good and bad we've done in our life. Do we judge ourselves, or are we judged by others? Hi, this is Lee Whitting, and I'll be your host in this next adventure in IAN's NDE Radio, brought to you by the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Please check out our website at iands.org. I spent the other morning trying to play God in the shower. To elaborate on that, there was a spider in the shower with me at the back of the tub, but clearly moving in a disastrous direction toward the water running down the drain. Now, several years ago, I would have sent a splash that would have hastened her demise. After all, I don't much fancy sharing my brief moment in hot water with some creature with eight legs. But in recent years, something in me apparently has changed. Perhaps I'm feeling my own mortality and recognize my commonality with all living things in that regard. I'm not yet a vegan or a Jain. Jains are an Indian religion that tries very hard not to kill or hurt any living creature, uh, certainly not insects. But if I'd been dry and clothed, I probably would have scooped the spider into a water glass and set her outside on the rose bush. But I was wet and soapy, and this spider wasn't going to wait for me to get dressed, so... First, I spoke to the spider, giving her clear instructions and perfectly good English not to proceed further. Not surprisingly, this made not one bit of difference. Next, I tried blowing in her direction, thinking the carbon dioxide in my breath would serve as a warning. There was a large, dangerous creature between her and the drain, and she'd best return to the safety of the back of the tub. She hesitated for a second, but then proceeded again along her dangerous course toward the swirling drain of death. It was at that moment that I thought, it's almost like God is taking a shower or doing something equally important, and the spider is one of those pesky human creatures that can be so irritatingly willful. God doesn't want to see her drown, but he gave her free will to be just as stupid as she chooses to be. Still, there are spiritual forces at work, call it God or guardian angels, that do offer warnings and sometimes even protection from our own foolish behavior. I can remember a day many years ago when I was unaccountably spared from a head-on collision with a hundred-year-old oak tree. I was on my way to the funeral of a wonderful little baby named Truth. She had been born with major disabilities, and I had helped off and on with patterning, exercising the child's ability to crawl. Sadly, she finally died from a bout of pneumonia. I was running late for the service, hit a patch of black ice at a high rate of speed, and suddenly had no control over the car. For some unknown reason, I called out to truth to help me, and within just a few feet of the tree, miraculously, the car suddenly got traction and swerved out of danger. To this day, I believe the soul of that infant came to my rescue, even though I don't understand how or why. There's an age-old debate that has raged since humans first ask why, concerning the nature of free will, and why each of us gets the cards we're dealt with in this life. From India comes the notion of karma, that our behavior in past lives conditions the life we are leading today, whether we've been reborn as a wealthy pasha or as a lowly spider. According to the Roman historian Josephus, the Sadducees, the Hebrew priests of the temple in Jerusalem, believed that people have free will, but no afterlife. On the other hand, the Pharisees, experts in Jewish law and teachers in the synagogues, believed people had free will and also an afterlife. Some Pharisees even believed in reincarnation. From St. Augustine's 4th century perspective comes the notion of original sin, that the free will Adam and Eve exercised in Eden to disobey God and to know good and evil resulted in our knowing good and evil, including death, just like God warned. In other words, continuous free will may only exist in a state of innocence and grace. Now, our free will is victim to a learned survival mode behavior. We are trapped by fears and desires that lead to addictive behaviors and perhaps even insanity at times. Was it of his own free will that Aaron Alexis killed a dozen people in Washington, D.C.? Or were the voices he heard, plus the psychoactive meds that uh, he may have been given by the Veterans Administration, helped to pull the trigger as well? Where is the free will in that? The debate over whether free will exists was most famously engaged in in the 1500s between the Renaissance rationalist Erasmus and the excommunicated monk Martin Luther. Luther argued that free will does not exist because man is a slave to sin. He also believed our fate was sealed by predestination, the notion that because God knows our future from the beginning, we are powerless to change what's already been written. Erasmus, on the other hand, argued that God's knowing the future did not determine it. An astronomer can know a solar eclipse is going to happen and yet not be causing it to happen, he argued. Erasmus insisted God gives us free will and rewards and punishes us according to how we use it. But then he adds that divine grace is the facilitator, calling grace an advisor, helper, and architect. But then it certainly could be argued that divine grace is not equally available to everyone. Erasmus' argument was made some 1,200 years earlier by the Gnostic church father, Origen. He argued that we have the free will to be good and evil by turns, and his belief in reincarnation made this yo-yo effect possible over long stretches of time. He asked how God could love Jacob and hate Esau before they were born. Origen said this was possible because God knew how they'd lived their past lives. Later on, Martin Luther would have responded it was because God knew the future, He already knew their characters. And later on, John Calvin would say, Jacob was one of the predetermined elect, one of God's chosen people. For an answer to these questions, I prefer to look to Plato's story of the soldier Ur and his near-death experience. And for those of you who missed our first show on NDE Radio, please refer to our archive at nderadio.org, where I give a complete summary of the story from Plato's Republic. Plato says the dead are divided between a temporary heaven for the righteous and a temporary purgatory for those who must repent for their lives. The two groups meet when when their rewards and punishment are complete, and it sounds like quite a party. They gather in a meadow, and Plato describes it as being like a festival where old friends from both heaven and purgatory are reunited once again. After that, they prepare for their next life. Lots are cast... And to each lot, a pattern of life is chosen by each soul. In other words, each soul's next life is a combination of free choice and chance. Er says, each soul shall have as much of virtue as he honors her. And the blame is his who chooses. God is blameless. Oh, and by the way, the spider turned back on her own, and it's doing fine as far as I know. If you're wondering what all this talk of free will has to do with near-death experience, it's just another way of looking for an understanding of our relationship with the big picture, the NDEs disclose. Now, to advance uh, another point of view on this, we're speaking today with Irene Kendig, author of a book that argues that pretty much all I've said up till now is essentially irrelevant. She graduated in psychology from UCLA and earned a master's in spiritual psychology from the University of Santa Monica. Her book, "Conversations with Jerry and Other People I Thought Were Were Dead," is a fascinating text. Welcome, Irene.
1: Thank you, Lee. It's a privilege to be here speaking with you today.
0: Well, it's it's wonderful to have you with us and um, on NDE Radio. Um, I wanted to start by asking. Um, A little about what a spiritual psychology is as a program at at a school.
1: Well, uh, spiritual psych. Well, I first received my degree in traditional psychology from UCLA.
0: Yes.
1: And there was nothing about the spirit, the soul, in the study of psychology. It's been lost in our traditional universities. So at the University of Santa Monica, spiritual psychology begins with a premise that we, first and foremost, are divine spiritual beings having a temporary human experience, and that we come into life choosing our life circumstances for purposes of spiritual growth.
0: Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you, too, I don't know if you're familiar with this little book. It's, uh, it was written by a woman named Susie Smith, and she wrote a book called uh, The Book of James, in which he said, this was back in 1974, she said that through automatic writing she had been in touch with William James. And I went back to look at that after reading your book and uh, thought there are similarities here between what um, these um, people are talking about in the afterlife. But perhaps you could tell um, our listeners the details of how you got in touch with your deceased friends.
1: Well, I had just started the master's program in spiritual psychology in 2006, and about that time, an acquaintance, a friend acquaintance, called and told me about a woman with an extraordinary gift. She said this woman could talk to people on the other side and that she wanted to make it her life's work. And she asked if I would be willing to do a session with her. Um, I really had a lot on my plate at that time and hesitated. Uh, she told me that um, it wouldn't cost me anything. She wouldn't charge me. She would just want me to tell other people if I thought she was the real deal. And so I agreed to do a session thinking I was doing a, a friend for, uh, a favor for my friend and um, I scheduled a session for a Thursday afternoon. I was sitting in my home office with my dog Scooter and um, I was asked, to give the first name of someone on the other side that I wanted to connect with. I said Biba. I didn't tell uh the, the medium that uh Biba was my mother or that she had transitioned three years earlier. And she began to describe my, my mother in very accurate terms and uh then she said um she's playing cards. She she says she's winning and she's laughing. <laughs> Does this sound like Biba? Well, if you knew my mother, you would know that she would practically greet you at the front door with a deck of cards. And in fact, some of our most profound conversations took place over uh, games of gin rummy. So at the end of that uh, session, I had spoken with four loved ones on the other side. Each one had come through in a way that was so uh, astounding and unequivocal that I danced around my house for three hours. Um, knowing that indeed we are eternal.
0: Mm. Now, did Jana channel this? Did she speak in the in your mother's voice when this happened?
1: She would relay what my mother was saying in her own voice.
0: Okay. Yeah. In your introduction to to, uh, to your book, you write, uh, "During that first hour-long session, I connected briefly with four loved ones." Each of their personalities came through in a way that was unmistakable, unequivocal, and irrefutable. And by the end of the session, I knew with certainty that my loved ones were still very much alive. Now, I, just to play devil's advocate, is it possible that the medium was reading your mind rather than the communication with the other side?
1: You know, that's certainly a possibility, Lee. And, you know, there's something, I think we all have this inner uh Guidance, this inner knowing that when something resonates as truth, it, it there's a knowing, and my knowing told me that I was indeed speaking with, that they were coming through um, through her as the channel, as the medium, and yes, that's certainly a possibility. She could have been reading my mind by all means.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, That whole free will, karma, predestination discussion I opened the show with was a quick review of some of the ancient explanations for why there's so much suffering and and injustice in the world. Um, And in your book, um, Because the Only Reality is Love, all the suffering and cruelty and human degradation in the world is either um, treated as self-inflicted or ultimately inconsequential because it's... um, it's planned in advance, and it's a test for one another, and um, and so people are suffering because they've chosen to suffer, basically as a learning experience. Doesn't this isn't the, a danger in justifying the suffering in the world by making an argument like that?
1: Well, one of the things that I would say, I'm not necessarily justifying suffering. What I'm saying is that perhaps we're not here necessarily to change the world. Perhaps the world is here for us, for our learning and for our growth. That's not mm-hmm. to say that's not to say that if I saw someone suffering that I wouldn't step forward in service to alleviate suffering to the best of my ability. But it's to say that there truly, on a soul level, there are no victims in the world. We are powerful creators. And we're I can't know, for example, what circumstances will best serve your spiritual growth. So how can I possibly judge whether something should be happening or shouldn't be happening or is right or wrong? I can't know that. And so therefore what I do personally is I refrain from judging. And I'm not talking about the the wise kind of judgment where we're discerning and we're assessing. I'm talking about the condemnation where we say this shouldn't be happening. He shouldn't have done that. How do I know what should or shouldn't be happening? Mm. I, I, I don't have that power to know. Therefore, I don't judge.
0: Right, and, and you're wise enough that you would step in if you saw someone in trouble or suffering and you could help them to do but that. Not, but so many, yes,
1: but not so many place, people
0: do not do that. <laughs>
1: yes, but not from a place that they're victims either. I would mm. I would step in, but knowing this is a powerful creator I'm interacting uh, with, just as powerful as I am and as you are, as we are all sparks of of this benevolent intelligence that is everywhere and in everything, including that spider that you spoke of. One
0: of the uh, one of the examples of how people um, will abuse that if that is true is the. Whole system of of karma and the untouchables in the Indian tradition, where the people are are scorned and, and treated as outcasts, you know, um, given the lowest of jobs and the lowest rung on the social ladder because uh, they were supposedly born to this caste of people who had screwed up in past lives, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's um it's hard to see a society uh, structured in that way. It seems uh, terribly unfair. Does the point of view that we are, um, for example, on, on page 282, you say, oh, and by the way, there's nothing anybody could ever do that would make them unlovable. And yet you think of how uh, people abuse one another. Uh, and so it's um, it's hard to reconcile um, that message from the other side with our reality here.
1: Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But from, consider that God doesn't judge that this loving beneficence, of which we are we are a part of, an integral part of, that there that that we are not judged. That you know, one of the things that comes across in every single person that I spoke with is this life review, but the life review is such that um, we experience ourselves from the perspective of all-sentient life that we affected. So, for example, when I review my life, I will hear myself from your perspective Mm. and from the people who are listening and know how I impacted them. And Because we are all one. We are all of one spirit. And we have the perceived illusion of separation when we are in physical world reality, but that's just in physical world reality that there is this perceived notion of separation. In truth, we are all one, and we are all love, and we are all loving, and we come to this Earth school for purposes of spiritual growth to learn, to um, uh, to be, to to fulfill our purpose, whatever that may be for each person. But each of us has come. And it's an extraordinary miracle that we're here at all.
0: Oh, for sure. Uh, I wonder, um, Irene, perhaps you could tell some of the listeners um, some of the descriptions that you heard from Jerry and the others about what it's like in heaven. Because I I think that'll be very interesting to people.
1: Well, first of all, um, there is no one that really states heaven as a place. My understanding is that Heaven is a state of consciousness. And that that state of consciousness is as available to us here and now as it is on the other side. That the first, the key, first of all, first and foremost, is to have a deep understanding of who we are on a spiritual level. To refrain from judging. Judging causes unnecessary suffering. And I would... Uh, Challenge you to find uh, suffering that does not that does not allow a. Let me just restate that. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a little bit lost in my words here. That
0: <laughs> heaven
1: on earth exists here and now. That when we transition, what shifts is that we release our bodies. We no longer have a body, but we have consciousness. We are, um, we, there, there is no end to us, and that we continue to grow and expand. So that love, which is our essence, and I firmly believe from everything that I've read and received, that love is the essence. Love is how I would define this benevolence this all-pervasive, all-knowing benevolence. And that we have an opportunity here on Earth to experience love because it's available every moment of every every day. When I'm not experiencing myself as unconditionally loving, I know it's because I'm putting something in the way because it's available all the time. And my loved ones on the other side tell me that that's one of the things that they realize in their life review that love was always available and what got in the way was their judgment, that they didn't deserve to receive it, that they were unworthy or uh, unlovable or whatever the judgment was that got in the way, but that the love was always available. And I say we have the opportunity to experience that. That's the challenge that's how I see the challenge is to experience ourselves as unconditionally loving to remove what is in the way of our experience of that. That's the challenge, I believe, here on earth.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Let me tell you a little story about one of my neighbors, an elderly man who was called a couple of weeks ago by someone who said they were his granddaughter and they were in desperate need of uh, $5,000 because they were imprisoned in another country, Uh, and because of love and trusting, he sent off, wired off this money to a con artist, and perhaps some judgment on his part would have been um, a good thing to have at that point in time.
1: Yeah, absolutely, but that's the wise judgment that I was speaking of. That's discerning. That's assessing a situation. That's but
0: don't different. we don't we that's always different. think our judgment is wise judgment? I mean because we're no. not so wise ourselves, we tend I, to I, rationalize these things.
1: I don't think my judgment is always wise. No.
0: Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't I can either assure but you that, it's not always
1: that, wise.
0: <laughs> that's in hindsight though, you know, it's at the moment that it's happening, you may think, "Oh, that's that's uh, ridiculous," or you may think oh, that person doesn't deserve my love. And um, it might be a wise decision to make, and it might not be a wise decision to make.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. Um, I volunteer and have been volunteering at one of the largest maximum security prisons in the United States, uh, Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California. And I've been doing this for about five, six years now with a group of volunteers from the University of Santa Monica who have graduated from the Master's in Spiritual Psychology. And I can tell you, That going in and working with 200 women at a time and bringing the, and seeing each woman as a divine being having a temporary human experience in a prison, that those women regularly raise their hands in the large group sharing to say, I am so grateful that I am here in prison because it's here that I discovered who I am. When I was outside the prison, I was so busy trying to survive, I had no time to discover who I am. But in the prison, I know who I am. And it's as a result of that we come in and we see them as divine beings. And I say that the opportunity that we have is to experience ourselves as divine beings and to see others as divine beings. That's not to say that you're not going to get you know, taken by somebody, that you know, you're going to do your best to be discerning and appropriate. But Mm -hmm. the bottom line is that who we are is divine. And when you take that into a prison and you hold the light and you hold the space for women who have, as a result of their poor choices, are in prison, what they see is that, yes, they made mistakes, but it does not define who they are. And that's a very powerful thing. Yes. And I say that's what we have the opportunity to to do every moment of every day, to be anchored in our divine essence and to carry that and carry that light out into the world. And, and you know, that's the best. On, on, on some level, I say to myself, you know, that I shine as brightly as I know how to shine and that I um, listen to my inner guidance and do those things, take those actions that I believe will that in the world that's how that's how uh, those are the choices I would I, I hope I make yes <laughs> that to always choose to shine as brightly as I can and and so that I also think that as each of us does that we inspire other people you know we it, it wakes other people up when we are anchored in our own divinity
0: I believe that too Uh Irene, in the, we just have a few minutes left, and I wanted you perhaps to tell the listeners a little about Jerry, who sounds like, a, sounds like he was a wonderful person when he was on Earth, and, uh, and a little about what he had to say about the other side.
1: Well, what he had to say, first of all, Jerry uh, transitioned when he was 68. Uh, he was told he had a brain tumor um, and that he had about two months to live, and he died. He transitioned. I can't use the word dying anymore. Because <laughs> he transitioned almost to the day. Um, he had a, an experience early on in life um, in which he, as a result of that experience, he dedicated his life to God. And he was a minister um, in life. And then in the latter part of his life, when he was in his 50s, he began traveling to Japan and studying with a Zen master and uh, about three weeks before transitioning, he was ordained as a Buddhist priest. Uh, He was certain that uh, he was going to continue on, and he describes his transition as practically melting out of his body. Um, Is there a specific question that you have? He shares so much, and there's so much Uh, about what he shares that impacts Yes, of
0: course, and and people will have to get the book in order to... to, uh see what I, um, the impression that I had of him, but um, one thing that was interesting was that he could cast up scenes, if he wanted to be by the ocean, he could create the image of the ocean um, just by thinking about it.
1: Yes, and in fact when he tells me that people are sitting near an ocean, I say is this a mini-ocean? He says no, (laughs) this is an ocean and so it's the power of creation. somebody else in the book talks about that they were very tired after transitioning and wanted a place to to lie down and realize that that what was created was perfection for them it, you know they didn't have to have somebody else build it, it in other words that's the power of, of how powerful we are as creators so these are self-created yes. scenes essentially so that if I want to be near the ocean and I'm on the other side and I want to be near the ocean, I don't go to the ocean. I bring the ocean to me.
0: <laughs> Irene, uh, tell, uh, tell our listeners how they can get uh, a copy of Conversations with Jerry and other people I thought were dead. It's, a, it's and, available uh, on at,
1: Amazon. It's available on okay. Amazon and uh, it's uh, both in paperback and Kindle. It's available at Barnes & Noble and on my website, conversationswithjerry.com.
0: Okay, and that's how, if they wanted to get in touch with you, they should go to your website?
1: Yes, uh, and um, I would be happy to hear from any listeners, and, and, and it's really my joy to be in service. Um, I'm a, a, a transformational life coach, a speaker, and uh, I love engaging in profound conversations with people to facilitate them in, in really discovering their own divine essence.
0: Right. And where are you based in the country, if someone wanted to uh, have you come and speak?
1: I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. Lee.
0: Okay. So then they'll they'll know if you're nearby or if you're uh, all the way across the country. Right. (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much, Irene Kendig, for being with us on NDE Radio. I've really enjoyed this conversation with you.
1: Me too. Thanks kindly.
0: Okay. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.
0: And I want to thank all our listeners. For being with us on NDE Radio, uh, please uh, go to our website at ians i a n d s dot org to find out more about near-death experience and uh, and hope uh, hopefully you will join me again next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time for more NDE Radio.